And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Shahana Bag-Lewis. Dr. Bag-Lewis is a practicing internist and she is core faculty with the Providence St. Vincent Internal Medicine Residency Program. She earned a Master's of Public Health in Health Administration and Policy from Portland State University. And Dr. Bag-Lewis earned her medical degree and completed internal medicine residency at OHSU, where she also served as chief resident. Among her many academic interests are bias in medicine, diagnostic reasoning, mentorship and sponsorship, as well as women in academic medical leadership. Dr. Bag-Lewis is well regarded for her curriculum development and her teaching in multiple settings, ranging from the bedside to professional meetings. And we are delighted to have her come and share her expertise today. Thank you, Dr. Bag-Lewis. I will turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Dr. Leacher, for that very kind introduction. And thank you all for joining today in this virtual Grand Rounds. I am really excited and honored to be giving this talk about something that is very meaningful to me, women in medicine. And I want to look at our policies and practices towards women and how those promote or hinder them from advancing, particularly as we work towards creating a more diverse, equitable and inclusive workforce. So I have no disclosures except that I am a woman. These are my objectives. I will start off with a review of the current national statistics around women in medical leadership positions to set the stage. And I will share some data to show how Providence St. Joseph Health compares. I will then use the rest of the time to explore some of the barriers that women face in achieving leadership positions. And I'll end the talk with recommendations for change. So there are a number of identifiable gaps that contribute to gender inequity. These include safety gap, respect gap, opportunity gap, pay gap, trust gap, including sexual harassment, gender bias, less diversity in medicine, and less women in leadership. All of these disparities further contribute to the cycle of promoting a culture of harassment and gender bias, which leads to less diversity in medicine and ultimately less women in leadership within medicine. So why does gender equity matter in healthcare leadership? Why do we need to promote women in medical leadership positions? And to be clear, I do believe it is a matter of need and not just the right thing to do. In his new book, The Diversity Bonus by Scott Page, who is a social scientist and professor of, at, of, at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, he explains that diverse groups find more innovative solutions to complex problems than do homogenous groups. In addition, Women bring a different voice and a different perspective that can help solve many of the problems facing medicine today. They tend to be collaborative, empathetic, and compassionate. They tend to mentor and empower others. They often are transformational rather than transactional, and they prefer flat to hierarchical structures. Women leaders also serve as role models for other women and help create an organizational climate of change that is supportive to women. We do not have a women in healthcare problem. We have a women in healthcare leadership problem. This quote really gets at the heart of the issue. 
Let's review the data that supports this idea. A 2018 study by the consulting company Oliver Wyman showed that women make up 33% of healthcare senior leadership positions, C-suite positions, and only 13% of healthcare CEOs. In healthcare, women account for 80% of buying and uses decision and represent 65% of the workforce, a relatively high share compared to other industries such as financial services or tech. Yet despite their influence as consumers and core workforce, they have noticeably underrepresentation in the industry's leadership. So what does this mustache catalog have to do with a talk on women in medical leadership? At first glance, this may seem entertaining, but the findings of this study highlight the significant lack of women in medical leadership. This was a study done by Werner et al. published in 2015 in the BMJ which looked at the top 50 NIH-funded medical schools in the USA and compared the number of women in leadership positions to the number of mustached men. Why did they use mustaches as a comparator? They chose mustaches because they are relatively rare. Less than 15% of men have a mustache, and they wanted to know if women were even more rare. Sadly, they found that women accounted for 13% of department leaders and mustached men accounted for 19%. There are more mustaches in medical leadership than there are women. This graphic is taken from the AAMC's 2013-2014 report on the state of women in academic medicine, the pipeline and pathways to leadership. For over 25 years, women have made up at least 40% of US medical students and in 2019, for the first time ever, there were more female medical students than male medical students. However, the number of women who progress in their careers to positions of leadership decreases over time. The number decreases to 38% for academic center faculty positions, 21% for full professors, and only 16% for deans. This is often referred to as the leaky pipeline. Well, how do we compare to other countries? Is this just a US problem? A study by Coleman et al. looked at women in leadership positions in Commonwealth and European countries in 2014. The above graph shows the breakdown of full professors and senior doctors in Germany, Sweden, the UK, and Vienna. You see that the number of women in senior and full professor positions is lower compared to men across the board. While we have made small improvements over time, the number of women in medical leadership remains significantly low in all domains across the globe. For some time, the assumption has been that an increase in women in medical school or in medical and in graduates or abundance of women entering the pipeline would lead to a proportionate increase in the number of women in leadership positions in medicine. This pipeline theory, however, has not borne out. The number of women in leadership has remained stagnant for years. The pipeline is not the problem, it is the process. For now, now I've defined the context of the problem, let's look at how things are at Providence St. Joseph Health. So how are we doing in terms of women in healthcare leadership? 
As a disclaimer, Providence St. Joseph Health is a large organization with a complex leadership structure. For the purpose of the talk, I would like to focus on the executive leadership at the national and Oregon regional level. This is by no means a comprehensive list of all women who hold leadership positions within the organization at large. This is a list of the executive leadership team at Providence St. Joseph Health and consists of 26 members, including President and CEO Rod Hockman. Of the 26 members, seven are women, including Lisa Vance, the Chief Executive of Oregon. This is a high-level organizational chart of the Oregon region. Of the 12 members of the Oregon Executive Management Team, six are women. Lisa Vance, the Chief Executive of the Oregon Region, Debbie Genson, Chief Strategy Officer, Tracy Pearson, the Regional Director in Portfolio Management and Operations, Melissa Dam, Chief Financial Officer, Lisa Powell, Chief Human Resources Officer, and Marsha Williams, Chief Marketing and Communication Officer. Looking at the Oregon Region clinical readership, as I suspect that is most applicable to those who are joining this Grand Rounds talk today. We have Dr. Kevin Olson, Chief Executive of Clinical Program Services. Dr. Olson has 19 direct reports, including Dr. Steve Freer, Regional Chief Medical Officer, who also happens to be my direct boss. 11 of 19 executives who report directly to Dr. Olson are women. So in summary, 27% of national executives at Providence are women, 50% of the regional executives are women, and 50% of the regional clinical executives are women. Providence is above the national average in terms of women who hold executive leadership positions, and we have reached gender parity at the regional level. Though we have made great strides with regard to the number of women in leadership positions, we should continue to build upon this success. In order to do so, I'd like to focus on key barriers that inhibit women's advancement in medical leadership and propose specific solutions to address those barriers. But before doing so, let's delve into, I'd like to highlight a study that attempted to identify differences in perceptions regarding institutional culture between men and women. This was a nationwide survey from 26 medical schools with 4,500 faculty. Based on their survey findings, women compared to men reported a lower sense of belonging, lower self-efficacy for career advancement, and gender equity. Women faculty were also less likely to perceive their institutions as family-friendly and to believe that their institution was making changes to address diversity goals. These findings are consistent with other similar studies that have found that men physicians' perceptions of gender equity were different from the lived experiences reported by women physicians. Many women do not pursue or persist in these careers or advance to leadership positions, not because they lack talent or aspiration, because they face barriers, including implicit and explicit bias, sexual harassment, unequal access to funding and resources, pay inequity, and higher teaching and advising load, among others. Implicit bias is the unconscious stereotypes that influence our judgment of others. 
For women, these unconscious stereotypes emphasize communal traits like collaboration and team building. Men are associated with agentic stereotypes, which emphasize self-assertion and independence. Why does this matter? Numerous studies have shown that agentic traits are considered more important for leadership than communal traits. This makes it harder for people to see women as leaders and may explain the disparities we see in healthcare leadership. To appreciate the magnitude of the problem, I would like to highlight a recent experiment done by a professor of organizational behavior in the UK. Subjects were asked to draw an effective leader. The following are a series of images she collected. Almost universally, the subjects, both male and female, drew a man. This experiment nicely highlights that from an early age, agentic traits are considered the norm for leadership, and these traits are culturally associated with men. Women will be inhibited from advancing in leadership positions until we change this narrative. This is a great example of how our narrative has not changed. In 2002, a professor at Columbia University asked two groups of students to read a case based on Heidi Roizen, a well-known venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Half of the students read the story of Heidi, the other half read the same case with the name changed to Howard. Both groups of students rated Heidi and Howard as equally competent, but they regarded Howard as more appealing colleague while seeing Heidi as selfish and not the type of person you'd want to hire or work for. Despite all things being equal, with the exception of their name, the woman was not seen as, as a leader. This is a problem. This study highlights that a fundamental challenge to women's leadership arises from the mismatch between the qualities traditionally associated with leaders and those tr traditionally associated with women. Implicit gender bias makes getting noticed as a leader in the workplace more difficult for women than men, which in turn impacts hiring, promotion, and retention. Implicit bias also impacts women of color more uh, actually disproportionately. One study by Bridges et al. in 2007 cited biased perceptions of leaders of color and their capacity to lead, which is often the result of conscious or unconscious reliance on existing stereotypes. Women of color in academia report tokenism and stereotyping as contributing to isolation, loneliness, and burnout. Bias in the application of evaluation criteria and the tender process may account for inequities in women of color entering leadership. Bias, discrimination, and harassment are major drivers of the underrepresentation under of women in science, engineering, medicine, and they are often experienced more overtly and intensely by women of intersecting identities. For instance, women of color, women with disabilities, and women who are LGBTQ. I have described how bias can inhibit a woman's ability to progress up the leadership ladder. The following are recommendations for how our, interest, our institution can address bias to better advance women. First and foremost, we must prioritize gender equity and be deliberate in our effort to expand leadership opportunities for women. We can do so by embracing bias literacy by making unconscious bias training a regular part of our physician development. Various studies have shown that 
implicit bias training helps personal bias awareness and awareness and recognition of the problem is half the battle. A pair matched single blind cluster randomized control trial at the University of Wisconsin-Madison published in Academic Medicine in 2015 compared a gender biased intervention delivered separately to 46 departments with 46 control departments. The control departments were offered workshops 12 to 18 months after completion of data collection. They were surveyed two days prior to the intervention, three days after and against at, again at three months post intervention. Faculty in experimental departments showed significantly greater increases in personal bias awareness. There were no differences, however, in action. However, when at least 25% of the department's faculty attended the workshop, they found a significant increase in action at three months. All people have subconscious biases. Once you acknowledge that, you enable yourself to begin consciously filtering in more women rather than unconsciously filtering them out. Number two, we must counter the existing stereotypes. One specific example of how to combat stereotypes is by making a deliberate effort to invite women and underrepresented minorities to speak at prominent lectureships. Qualified women and underrepresented minorities exist in every area of medicine. It is also important to make conscious efforts to counter stereotypes in everyday moments. For instance, when your women colleagues speak up in conference, support them and speak up when you see them being overlooked or interrupted. Number three, we must ensure transparent and diverse hiring and promotion practices. Studies have shown that we naturally choose people who are most like us. To combat this, we must have a transparent and structured hiring process, which should include diverse representation on search, interview, hiring and promotion committees, whose members must be required to undergo unconscious bias training. These practices will ensure we have the most diverse and qualified workforce. Number four, we must reward diversity by prioritizing and acknowledging the leaders that make intentional efforts to increase the diversity of our workforce and eliminate known bias favoring men. For instance, evaluating potential rather than specific performance criteria using language that emphasizes stereotypical male qualities such as strength over gender neutral or stereotypical female qualities such as mentoring and collaboration. Finally, we must conduct regular introspective assessments in order to identify areas for improvement. This slide kind of sums it all up. We must acknowledge that we all have a gen unconscious gender bias establish a no interruption rule for everyone at the table, practice bystander intervention, so stop an interrupter in his tracks or her tracks, create a buddy system, pair up with a colleague and agree to actively listen and show interest when one of you speaks up in a meeting, support your female colleagues, and for women, we should practice assertive body language and speak authoritatively. And finally, we should support companies with women in power. Another important barrier to women's advancement and leadership is the concept of work-life balance. Studies in nearly every industry have highlighted this principle. To put it in perspective, 
women dedicate on average seven years of life towards unpaid work. A 2014 article by Dr. Jolly and her colleagues looked at the differences in time spent on parenting and domestic tasks among men and women physicians. They found that women with children reported spending 12 hours per week more on parenting or domestic activities than their male counterparts. They also found that women with partners who were employed full-time were more likely to take time off during disruptions of usual childcare than men. According to a comprehensive 2017 study by leanin.org and McKinsey and Company, of 590 US corporations employing more than 22 million Americans, 83% of working women have a partner who works compared to 60% of working men. This discrepancy grows as women advance in their careers with 72% of senior level women with partners that work compared to only 37% of senior level men. Additionally, they noted that 39% of women in dual career relationships reported doing all or most of the household work compared to only 11% of men. Given this discrepancy, it is understandable that women end up taking more time off from work to attend to household needs. Unfortunately, as highlighted by this study, women experience more distress than men when tending to these responsibilities while trying to balance their careers in an environment that does not take into account this additional work and thereby hinders their advancement. I've described how inattention to work-life balance can inhibit a woman's ability to advance. The following are recommendations for how our institution and department can improve work-life balance. Number one, create flexible work schedules. We know women dedicate a significant portion of time towards household work, some of which requires extended leave. Implementing flexible work schedules, which include part-time positions with prorated tenure clocks can help address these discrepancies. Number two, limit early morning and after hour meetings as such meeting times are difficult for those with families. Number three, it is imperative that we provide adequate accommodations, including easy access to lactation rooms and on-site childcare. Number four, mandated family leave. Our institution has made significant advancements by implementing a paid parental leave policy. However, I would encourage that we take a broader approach by creating a policy that addresses other family needs, such as time off for elder care. Additionally, I would like to point out that though we do not have a federally mandated family leave policy, such policies do exist in other countries. Institutions can create their own policy, and I would encourage a conversation about this. Finally, we must create a supportive culture in which women feel empowered to talk about these competing demands without fear of being viewed as less committed to their work. Another barrier that I'm sure you're all well aware of is the pay gap. This, um, you know, there are various recommendations for how we can address this pay gap, including equitable and transparent compensation practices. Sanders et al. 
reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2018 that lack of transparency about compensation continues to be a prevalent problem. Other industries are starting to make compensation data available to employees. Even entire countries such as Iceland have legislative wage transparency. To operationalize this in medicine, medical centers need to make the American Association of Medical Colleges salary report readily accessible along with their own institution, department, and, and division-specific data. Non-academic practices should grant physician access to medical group management association salary compendium or a similar one along with their own de-identified physician compensation data. And solution two, mentorship for women around negotiation skills. Brita Roy in the 2018 Journal of General Internal Medicine article on gender pay gaps in medicine moving from explanations to action noted that gender disparities in pay emerge right at the beginning of physician's career. This is thought to be due to gender related differences in negotiating salaries and startup packages which end up potentiating over time as salaries increase by a fixed percentage. Women are less likely to receive mentorship around job negotiation skills or due to cultural norms, they may be less likely to ask for higher start salaries and startup packages. Though a small portion of gender pay disparities in this study was attributed to the number of hours worked, Improving policies to achieve better work-life balance across all medical specialties for men and women may not only help close the gender pay gap, but also reduce the rates of burnout. Using this approach, if a physician works part-time for a period of time, if she or he returns to full-time work, his or her compensation should equal that of a peer that worked full-time throughout. It's highlighted in this recent NEGM perspective piece. The percentages of permanent acting or interim department chairs and medical stool deans who are women has risen slowly over time. Unless the rate of change accelerates, it could take another 50 years to reach gender parity. This would mean that women entering medical school today would be nearing retirement before women account for 50% of deans and chairs. Though this is looking at academic center, I think we can very nicely um, use this data to extrapolate women in other C-suite positions. This begs the question, why do women not advance in leadership and how can we help to secure a foothold in the C-suite? The most important factors that contribute to promotion and tenure include participation in scholarly work, publications, sitting on national committees, and being considered an expert in your field. These are no different from men. However, women face challenges to achieve these goals. Due to some of the reasons already discussed, many women do not take on positions of leadership and those who do move slowly up the promotion ladder and may never reach the highest levels. One reason that women struggle to advance in their career
I invite everyone to sit tight for a moment while we figure oh, out our technical trouble. Get myself back on there. Dr. Bag Lewis, maybe we can have you reshare your slides. Yes, I'm trying to do that. Sure. Okay. Can you all hear me okay? We are perfect. Okay, let me go back. Okay. One reason. Oh my God, I don't know why this is happening. In their career is due to their. Okay, let's go. One reason women struggle to advance in their career is due to lack of support from their superiors. We know that intentional sponsorship is critical to get women to advance to leadership roles. This is a critical difference between sponsorship and mentorship. The term sponsorship describes a powerful senior leader advocating on behalf of a high potential individual. This is critical for career advancement. In other words, Your lack of support quote, from their superiors. A quote. We know that quote, I apologize. A coach tells you what to do. A mentor will listen to you and speak with you, but a sponsor will talk about you. Unfortunately, we know that this is not happening for women as often as it should. This study was published in JAMA and looked at individuals who received NIH funded K08 and K23 grants between 2006 and 2009, which are mentored career development grants. They assessed sponsorship experiences by asking award recipients if their mentor acted as a sponsor by helping them obtain desirable positions. They also asked if they had been invited to be on panels, national committees, to write editorials, or to serve as editorial boards. They were considered to have been sponsored if they answered yes to any of the questions. As you can probably predict, they found that women are not sponsored as often as men. And interestingly, women were least likely to sponsor other women compared to sponsoring men. I suspect that the difference in sponsoring is because men are most often in positions to do so and get more sponsored experiences themselves and tend to have less competing demands such as administrative work and increased domestic responsibilities. They then looked at whether individuals that had been sponsored had achieved their definition of success, which they defined as either being the PI on R01 or grants totaling more than $1 million, publishing 35 or more peer-reviewed publications, or appointment as dean department chair or division chief. They found that of grant recipients men were much more likely to accomplish these career successes than women. Not only do women get sponsored less, but even when sponsored, the impact appears to be less significant than that of men who are sponsored. When women are not invited or suggested to participate in prestigious scholarship, they're not able to advance their careers and thus stagnate in lower leadership ranks. Lack of sponsorship for women is in part born out of lack, born out of or a result of a concept referred to as homosocial reproduction, the tendency of people to select incumbents who are socially similar to themselves. 
and this can result in manals. Panels where every participant is a man. Dr. Francis Collard, the director of NIH, recently stated that it is time to end the tradition in science of all male speaking panels and stated that when he gets a speaking invitation, he expects a level playing field where scientists of all backgrounds are evaluated fairly for speaking opportunities. If that attention to inclusiveness is not evident in the, in the agenda, I will decline to take part. I challenge other scientific leaders across the biomedical enterprise to do the same. I wanna take a minute here to bring up an important point. Inviting women to committees and panel is important, but we should ensure that these women are not considered as token members to check a box for gender diversity. Our goal should be for adequate representation and there should be no max on the number of women. To quote the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when people ask me sometimes, when will there be enough women on the court? My answer is when there are nine. Scholarship is another very important piece of why women advance at slower rates than men. This is another area which requires intentionality. Here is more data that shows that women suffer disproportionately from this as well. This multi-centered study of over 1,200 full professors looked at the productivity of men versus women by counting the total number of publications and the author's age index. They found that women have statistically significant less publications compared to their male counterparts and their articles had less impact as deemed by the H index. This discrepancy remains throughout women's careers. There are a number of reasons why this happens. Women have less time to complete research due to competing responsibilities. Women have less mentorship and sponsorship and they get less funding. This study from 20, 2005 looked at NIH funding awards for both men and women. What is most interesting is that women apply significantly less than men for each NIH funding, 28% versus 72% of all applicants. Once applied, the chances of getting award between men and women is equal. If women are given the opportunity and sponsored, they are able to succeed in scholarship, but we have to be intentional. One of the last pieces to consider is who are the people sitting in these influential positions that make decisions about publications? One example is editorial board representation. In these four prominent journals, sadly, women are still underrepresented. JAMA, NEJM, Annals of Internal Medicine, as of 2010, still had less than 40% of women on editorial boards. It is worth noting that they have all doubled the numbers of women leaders since 2005, which is reassuring. But again, we have not reached gender parity. The Lancet is an exception, which has exceeded 50% of women on their editorial boards through significant and intentional effort. Being on editorial boards influences what the journals publish and as a consequence, what the scientific community emphasizes on a global level women should be part of that discussion. Recommendations for advancing women. 
I've gone through some of the key barriers that women face in advancing their career. Here are some specific recommendations. Number one, sponsor women. Recognize women may already be skilled enough, smart enough, but just haven't been given the opportunity. As highlighted in a Harvard Business Review article in 2010, why men get more promotions than women, a career development plan of excelling a woman may not be telling her to go to more meetings and conferences. Remember that it's more about amplifying her name and her work rather than making her work harder to get her name out there. This can be accomplished by raising their names up. When there is a job to do, it is natural to recommend someone you work closely with or someone with the most experience. Stop, recognize your bias, and think if you know a woman who could complete the job. Vouch for their work and share it. Intentionally consider women for leadership positions, committees, panels, boards, and recommend them for these positions. Share feedback about a woman's positive work to her superior. This empowers women to take on roles they may otherwise be overlooked for. Number two, collaborate with women. Consider how you can add women to your current projects and scholarship. When starting your next project, consider the diversity amongst your group and strive for gender equity. Diverse groups lead to innovative and more comprehensive work. Number three, set diversity targets and track metrics. For instance, we should aim to have gender parity in our executive leadership. This involves tracking leadership metrics. For, for instance, the number of women versus men in leadership roles relative to the entire workforce, studying and appropriately correcting detected inequities, identifying and cultivating potential women leaders early in their careers, sharing the success stories of women leaders to inspire others, succession planning, with consideration of women candidates within the institution and a zero tolerance policy for sexual harassment. And we should hold sponsors accountable for sponsoring junior faculty. In the business industry, this means setting time limits for advancement and holding the sponsor responsible if the mentee doesn't advance in that time period. And lastly, number four, we should consider term limits. Opportunities for advancement to the senior level are few. The intent of term limits is to encourage innovation, limit the power of the incumbency, and increase the diversity of elected officials. Some institutions have already taken this approach to increase diversity, including the Mayo Clinic, which has eight-year limits on department and division heads, the NIH, which now has their branch chiefs limited to 12 years in three, four year consecutive terms, and the University of British Columbia Medical School, which has limited leaders to two five year renewable terms. In summary, I hope that I have in fact shown you that there truly is a problem with the number of women in healthcare leadership. Though Providence has made strides with regards to gender equity, we should continue to improve. And we can do so by 
identifying bias and pursuing diversity, changing policies that hinder women from advancing and succeeding. And for everyone joining this virtual talk, I encourage you to sponsor and collaborate with women, not because they are women, but because they are qualified for the position and they add great value to our institution. And with that, I thank you all very much. And I'd like to acknowledge a few folks. Um, I would like to acknowledge Dr. Laura Leitcher for inviting me to give this Grand Rounds talk, Dr. Claudia Leonard for recruiting me to join the core faculty at Providence St. Vincent's, um, Dr. Steve Freer for mentoring and sponsoring many women, including myself, Dr. Seema Desai, the program director at the OHSU IM Residency for being an incredible mentor and sponsor to many women, Drs. Kimberly Chestine, Patricia Liu, and Rihanna Wurzberger, who are my co-chiefs um, and who have supported me and helped me create this talk. Um, and finally, I would like to thank the core faculty, staff, and residents at Providence St. Vincent's IM Residency for welcoming me and inspiring me. And thank you all for listening and sticking with us even due to the technical glitches. Oh. Thank you so much for your talk, Dr. Shahana Beg-Lewis. Um, a lot to, to think about, um, some very tangible ideas as well. Um, technical glitches, only minor. Um, and thanks to our audience for, for sticking with us too. Um, we'll invite uh, comments and questions to come through on the Q&A. Um, and in the moment, uh, I have some, some questions and thoughts to get us started. Um, I wondered, uh, thank you for providing the national context and then specifically Providence St. Joseph as well as our Oregon region. Um, interesting to see the 50% um, parity here regionally. And I wondered if you had any insights into why you think Oregon is above the national average. That's a great question. You know, actually, I'm not entirely sure why, but I have what I can share with you that this seems to be across the board. Um, having come and spent a lot of time at OHSU, we see similar trends there. Uh, so I think that what I can, and I am new to the Providence family, but what I suspect is probably not different here is that intentional intentionality from leaders to kind of create this change. So um, we noticed that at OHSU and I'm very sure that that's probably the same thing here regionally at Providence um, in the Oregon region where folks have decided that this is important and are actually making that a priority. Yeah, thanks for reminding us of that degree of intentionality, right? It doesn't just happen without, and I guess as we each reflect on the positions in which we sit, um, very tangible for me, of course, thinking about who are we recruiting to be in this venue as a voice of teaching in front of our community um, and real opportunity um, to make sure that we're uh, including diversity on, on multiple levels. So thanks for the reminder. Um, really, yeah. that really kind of pairs with when we look at the leaky pipeline, because I think otherwise our thought was like, well, we just need to get more women in there and you're going to see more women in leadership positions and that didn't just happen. And so in order to actually be able to see that, we need to be intentional in our efforts. Great, absolutely. Um, I'll read a comment that just came through. Fabulous talk. 
I only recently grasped this difference between mentorship and sponsorship, which I think is such a critical concept. Thank you for articulating this so well. And I think because it is important and maybe when you originally defined um, what you meant by sponsorship, it was shortly after our glitch. Um, would you mind just recapping briefly um, the most important distinction there? Yes, thank you for saying. So I think that, uh, um, thank you for that. So a mentor is, is similar to, I think, a coach, you know, and they're gonna listen to you and be there. Um, and help you along the way, whereas a sponsor is someone who is in a position of authority and can actually bring you up. They will not only recommend that, they will not only suggest you for positions, they will actually recommend you and have that authority to do so. So that is actually the kind of a key difference uh, with a, a mentor versus a sponsor. Great, thank you. That makes good sense. Um, and here's another um, related comment. Uh, thank you for mentioning the negotiation factor. I've hired for several positions over the years and have noticed that men are much more likely to negotiate salary than women are. Any reflections to that comment? So true. I mean, I think that these are, you know, a lot of this is cultural norms. They're like gender and uh, that are very gender specific. And um, I think with this, having open discussions and just being more transparent is what will help. I was actually um, very um, pleasantly surprised during my own hiring process on how transparent Providence actually was with the um, kind of salary and, and benefits, which I would have to say is not something that you see across the board and unfortunately, less so in academic institutions where a lot of this data comes from. Great, um, thank you for that. Glad glad to hear about your relatively recent <laughs> hiring process. And I agree, um, there does seem to be um, uh, perhaps much, much uh, less clearly defined boundaries and expectations in my experience as well with um, hiring in academic settings. So um, work to be done. Um, here is a comment from colleague of both of ours, Dr. Shelley Sanders. Um, Dr. Beg Lewis, what a timely and well-researched summary of the problem, and even more inspiring to hear so many concrete suggestions for solutions. Would you want to elaborate a bit on the role of women seeing themselves as leaders and aspiring to leadership roles? What steps can we take to cultivate self-image as a leader for members of underrepresented groups? Oh, it's a great and question. I can repeat if need be. Yeah. So how do, can you see yourself as a leader? I think it's kind of what and what can we do to help women, especially. So I think part of that is it helps by having more women in positions of authority and positions of leadership. I mean, we will you will more likely see yourself or consider that as an option if there's someone above you or a role model that you can view and aspire to be. Um, and Similarly, I think that is why we should be working towards including not only gender diversity, but ethnic and racial diversity as well. Because I think that a lot of data has shown that we're more likely to consider something as an option when we see someone like ourselves in that role. And then I think what we should do um, as we are working towards this goal is those of us who are in these positions need to be 
a voice and need to be out there um, for other women and uh, minorities to see us. And this may mean that info in places like Oregon um, and our institution here, where we, we see more women in positions of leadership, that perhaps we should be part of the, the national dialogue and participate in meetings so that people in parts of the country where it is less common can see that and realize that this is a uh, that this is a possibility and then i think as we are in these institutions and in these positions we need to think very you know um, we should be very thoughtful and intentional when we are picking folks for to come up the ranks and picking them for various leadership positions that we are trying to consider all sorts of diversity in our applicants. Yeah, great. Thanks for those thoughts. It, it makes me um, think of the term that many of us are familiar with, with regard to the imposter syndrome um, and really how do we create an environment and a culture where uh, people are able to view themselves as belonging. Um, so some, some great concrete thoughts there. Um, here is another uh, comment and follow up question. I'm interested in uh, environmental diversity and the idea that the photos you see on the wall might reflect or not reflect you and your experience and the impact that has on your comfort level in trying to rise in that world. Did you find much in your research on this concept? And that would be environmental diversity. Any comments there? I'm. Um... I didn't specifically, but I, I suspect you mean more like in terms of the folks that you see around you or people representing representative of you. Um, that does seem to play a role in in if if that is what you meant in terms of who seeks those positions and um, how likely you are to seek those positions, but not specifically. Great, thank you. And I think. Um, uh, again, somewhat people around you, but even the the environment, so artwork and such. And I think this is an area certainly we have seen over the last year with regard to racial diversity too, and taking a look at what are the, the pictures that surround us. Um, so paying attention to things in our environment. Um, what are we the have a cues, I guess, the subliminal cues that we are giving as an institution. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, Great, thank you for so many of the wonderful comments and questions. I'll continue here. We have um, really a, a few minutes left. Um, has anyone studied whether women in leadership had to leave a more collaborative or social style behind and become more hierarchical, hierarchical, hierarchical <laughs> and decisive? Ah, that's a great question. I'm not sure that that was specifically studied, but what many different um, studies I came across suggest that when women do that, they are not viewed favorably. So it is a kind of a kind of a slippery slope and a hard balance. And that's kind of going back to the Heidi Howard example, that it's kind of you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. That um, if you if we take on those roles that are considered more traditionally male or agentic and especially those qualities then oftentimes this is stereotyping um, that is viewed negatively so having to be much more cognizant of how we balance that 
And I think for those of us and our colleagues, we should be kind of be mindful of this bias that exists. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. I definitely found the uh, Heidi Howard example just so tangible, a simple um, example and experiment that just put it really front and center. So thanks for sharing that example. Um, I know you have some interest in uh, physician and healthcare well-being as well, um, which certainly interfaces with this topic. Um, I wondered if you had any thoughts thinking about, um, particularly historically, a culture of medicine um, that um, very appropriately so places um, an aspect of selflessness at the center as we focus on patient needs. Um, but I think one of the more tangible ways that that is sometimes viewed and measured is willingness to stay late, stay early, have, you know, give up flexibility in our own schedules. Um, and any thoughts? I really appreciated the, the tangible examples of thinking about supporting leave and part-time. Um, mm -hmm. And I just love to hear a couple thoughts uh, additionally from you. Sure, I, that, th those are great um, thoughts. Uh, thank you, Dr. Leacher. I, I think that what I found most interesting when I was going through the data and wanting to share those specific examples is if we are able as a collective, you know, um, as you know, of, you know, physicians to change the way we approach and think about things and, and not set that as the norm, that, that A, that will allow for a more diverse group of people to assume positions of leadership, but it'll also lead to, I can only imagine, um, less just personal satisfaction and less likely for burnout. Because this has been something, as you mentioned, has been an accepted and a norm and a practice that we've all thought this is how it's supposed to be. But now we have come finally to a point where we talk about that this isn't really just because it's always happened this way doesn't mean that it should and that that is really the best thing and that perhaps we need to reconsider when we're having meetings at all hours of the day or at 6 a.m or at 7 p.m at night and someone cannot get home to be with their family is that really the best thing that we should be doing um, i really love the idea of that some places are doing this and especially a lot of non there's data from non healthcare industries on having on site childcare. That's just something that is not something you have to go through a bunch of hoops to be able to to be part of and is easily accessible. So those are some specific ideas. Great, many thanks for that. Um, I noticed we're in our last few minutes here, so I think I'll read a last comment, give you an opportunity to reflect with any closing thoughts. Um, but again, thank you so much, Dr. Beg Lewis. Um, we have an anonymous comment here. Thank you for highlighting all of the disparities. Many times I feel like the lone person pushing the equity forward at times. I am unapologetic about training women to ask for what they are worth and to understand their value. I'm glad to see Oregon being above the national average overall. We still have work to do. Well said. I would I would agree with that, and I think that, you know, I I hope that folks after being part of this um, are are inspired um, to do that and to kind of take this one step further. 
Thank you. We will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.